Hello. Hello. This is Landon. And Monique. And we are... We're actually at a park. We're at a baseball diamond. <laughs> How yeah. classical American for all of our American uh, Friends. listeners. Yeah, because we don't really play a lot of baseball here no. in Canada, do we? I don't Although know. the Toronto Blue Jays are pretty good, aren't they? I think I, they are. I wouldn't know. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've I think I know a little bit more. The Toronto Blue Jays is a baseball team. Well, I know that much. There you go. And but we are good. in a small little park yes. in Vancouver enjoying the sunshine. Exactly. And Finally sunshine. And we're yeah. going to do a podcast in the park. Yes, it's we are. It's the P in P. <laughs> podcast in park. Oh, wow. That's mm-hmm. true. Okay. So we're so, going to talk a little bit about cognitive bias today. Are you saying I'm biased? Uh, we all are, I think. Oh. We didn't really introduce ourselves, but I don't know if people who are used to listening to us, but maybe we should introduce ourselves I'm Landon. Uh, and you are? I'm an emergency nurse and a critical care transport nurse. And my name is Monique, and I am a emergency nurse practitioner in a large urban hospital in uh, British Columbia. Perfect. Okay, so today we want to talk about how we make clinical decisions, or perhaps what leads to poor or misguided decisions, which leads us to talk about cognitive bias. So what is cognitive bias and why are we talking about it? Well, these are flaws or distortions in judgment and decision making. And the reason we're talking about it today is that cognitive biases are increasingly recognized as contributors to patient safety events. I think we need to start by discussing how we as nurses determine who is sick and who is well. And often nurses will call or say that they have a gut instinct. That's how they can tell. Well, in the Merck Manual, which is one of the oldest medical reference books, um, the section on decision-making in medicine states that it is an intuitive understanding of probabilities combined with cognitive processes called heuristics to guide clinical judgment. Now, heuristics are referred to as rules of thumb, educated guesses, or mental shortcuts. It usually involves pattern recognition due to prior experience. For me, this is a better way to explain a gut instinct. It is a decision we make based on our pattern recognition, our clinical experience, and our educated guess about what was probably wrong with the patient. I actually hate the term gut instinct, but I think it's because I know I think it's because we don't know how to explain it. And I like this definition. I'm surprised you didn't mention anything about Merck Manual being the oldest manual and, and, you know, anything about me. Well, that was your first husband, wasn't it? Oh, see, I had a feeling that was coming up because it it was written in 18 something. Oh, yes. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that all sounds pretty good. But Mm -hmm. this bias can definitely lead to errors. And the thing we have to acknowledge is that we are all biased. I'm not, of course, but (laughs) but definitely the rest of you are. As we critically look at errors in decision-making, studies have looked at whether there are some commonalities that shape these biases. And, And once you accept that these biases exist, we can maybe attempt to guard ourselves against them. You have to acknowledge that they're there. Mm -hmm. Before you can try and address them. And if you say, well, I'm never biased. Well, the reality is you are. And Mm -hmm. until you acknowledge it, you can't. And we also have to prevent them. That's the thing. Understanding And and these aren't good things. So if you want to do the best, just admit it. We're all biased. And now we can move on. Unfortunately, cognitive bias is inconsistently reported. And so it's difficult to quantify. There is, according to some literature, diagnostic errors are associated with 6 to 17% of adverse events in hospitals. And 28% of those errors have been attributed to cognitive bias. So... It's a significant mm-hmm. problem. And I know as we describe these, every single one of you is going to resonate with one or two of them and go, oh, yeah, I've been there. 
okay? Certainly more comprehensive studies are needed to determine the prevalence of cognitive biases and their potential to impact on clinical decisions, medical errors, and patient outcomes. There have been more than a hundred cognitive biases identified, and these are not <laughs> specific biases, these are no. types of cognitive okay. bias. Um, we're going to concentrate on some of the common ones, but definitely it's something to look into, and, and if you think wow, this is something interesting, then mm -hmm. read more about it. That's yeah. what we try to do with all our podcasts. I so. think we actually chose ones that resonated with you and I. Probably. Probably ones we may have been guilty of, perhaps? That may be. And yes. the first one's called availability bias, <laughs> which I definitely am never available for anything. So. <laughs> so availability bias is where recent experience with a particular diagnosis increases the chance that the same diagnosis will be made again. The opposite is also true so that a diagnosis that hasn't been seen in a long time is less likely to be made. In general, this will lead to rare diseases being underdiagnosed and common diseases being overdiagnosed. So for example, in the middle of the flu season, it's incredibly easy to diagnose every patient with shortness of breath as having the flu, um, and then potentially missing a subtle pulmonary embolus. Uh, recent case bias or significant case bias are subtitles of this availability bias. If you missed a PE in a young woman who had a vague chest discomfort but really no other risk factors, you may want every young woman to have a D-dimer plus or minus a CT scan of the chest. I know that my, the common one also is the, the back pain that ends up oh, being yeah. an uh, uh, sorry, an aortic aneurysm. Yeah, exactly. S suddenly everyone has an aortic aneurysm that week. Exactly. Yeah. So, however, experience can also lead to underestimation, right? So one of the, our newer triage nurses had triaged several patients with syncopal episodes to a less acute area, and they all turned out to be benign, like a vasovagal. So the next syncopal patient did not get as thorough a history taking and likely a decreased index of suspicion. And the presentation was of a young man whose girlfriend said that her boyfriend was sitting on the couch and then became unconscious. She did CPR and he woke up. Well, his father died at the age of 35 of sudden death syndrome. This is not syncope or a vasovagal episode. I'm sorry, a, anyone who's had CPR? Yeah. I don't think is a vasovagal. I, I, and I don't overcomplicate triage. <laughs> no, exactly. Someone pushed on your chest, great. Just go to the trauma room, get and checked we'll out. We'll have, you out. A, we'll have you in a side stretcher in five minutes. <laughs> That's right. So a sudden death in a young person can be caused by heart disease, including cardiomyopathy, congenital heart disease, myocarditis, genetic conductive tissue disorders, mitral valve prolapse or conduction disease, medications or other causes. It also could be Brugada syndrome, short QT syndrome, WPW. So this case is way more complicated. You don't want that at triage. No. So just get some of them somewhere else and uh, let them figure it out. But based on her prior experience, um, at triage and not a lot of clinical. All the rest have been nothing. Exactly. So, so this must be nothing. nothing. Exactly. All right. Let's talk about another one, which is called representation error. And this happens when someone has textbook, sorry, textbook symptoms of a disease, but it is rare in that population group. Or there's a tendency to judge the likelihood of a diagnosis based on a typical prototype of the diagnosis. So this results in either looking for an improbable diagnosis or missing the atypical presentations of diseases. So, so a, an example, uh, a 24-year-old guy who was uh, seen in an emergency department who had been sunbathing naked and fell asleep. Uh, when he woke up, he was very sunburned and came to the ED for some pain relief. Now, let's all put in our judgment bias <laughs> here. Yes. 
you're weird. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, but you showed up anyway, uh, job security. Uh, his pre presenting complaint was chest pain. Be it well, secondary to the burn. <laughs> exactly. Um, despite the fact that it would be very rare in this age group, based on his history, that this would be cardiac in nature, but the nurse there chose to do a pre-existing order set for cardiac chest pain, 12 lead blood work, and there mm -hmm. we go. Probably not. I don't think so. Cardiac chest pain. You yeah. So so the best example of representation error is a chest pain thing, and what we call typical chest pain. So yeah. that's the retrosternal chest pain, crushing sensation into the jaw, the left arm. Those studies were done on 50-year-old white men. <laughs> and so if you're not a 50-year-old white guy in the 1950s, mm -hmm. you may not necessarily present the same way. I would not think so. And so it's important that we understand that. And, you know, I've had a a long-running line that I use is, oh, you're 60, you're female and diabetic with toe pain? Well, it's probably an MI. We should get a 12 lead. And I, I, I'm often right. Um, <laughs> so, so it is acknowledging that females, diabetics, all these other populations present differently with chest pain. So you may attribute the classical chest pain mm -hmm. to the wrong patient making an attribution error. Exactly. So premature closure is probably one of the more common errors, most common. This is where you make a quick diagnosis, often based on some pattern recognition, and you fail to consider other possible diagnoses and stop collecting data. You kind of jump to conclusion, which none of us do. I already jumped um, to a conclusion. Yeah. The summary. Exactly. <laughs> I had a patient when I was an NP student, and he had come into the hospital with a migraine. He had actually seen his GP, told his GP, I've got, my, uh, I've got a headache. It's not like my typical migraine, but the GP just heard migraine, gave him a shot of Demerol. Who does that anymore? That is not standard of practice. I don't even know if they make Demerol. I don't think we carry it know. anymore. If you're a newer nurse and don't know what Demerol is, it's an opioid analgesic. <laughs> exactly. Meperidine. That, that you should not use anymore. Exactly. But uh, he got a shot of Demerol, went home, and then continued to have a headache and projectile vomiting and came into the emergency department. I could have easily just fallen into that migraine pattern, but being an NP student, definitely much more vigilant and I did a whole exam had lateral gaze neglect we did a CT angio and he ended up having a posterior communicating aneurysm so there is that danger if we had if I just prematurely just said well it's just a migraine and obviously Demerol is not the right drug I need to give him better drugs uh, there is a tendency in these types of errors to stop too early in your diagnostic process and not gather enough information looking at other possible alternatives and it's kind of an umbrella category that can encompass a lot of other errors essentially any cognitive error could result in the belief that we have already arrived at the correct diagnosis and we don't need to go any further the idea is when the diagnosis is made the thinking stops this kind of fits into this anchoring error that we talk about a lot where you hang on to a diagnosis, even if the tests prove that you're wrong, you're like, well, surely it's still this. The tests must be wrong. I'm totally right. Absolutely. So there was a patient that came in for the third time, um, had a history of migraines as a child, hadn't had one for years and years. Two prior eMERGE docs saw the patient, said that it was a diagnosis. So I saw the diagnosis, saw the charts, walked in, guy has a headache, 
decide he's got a migraine, thought, well, maybe it's just an intractable migraine. I'll treat him. He felt marginally better. And I thought, well, I'm going to send him home. I will send him to the neurologist feeling very proud of myself that, you know, as an outpatient, he can go. Nothing urgent, but told him, come back. Sure enough, he came back worse, confused. Mm. Uh, a fourth eMERGE doc saw the patient and did a lumbar puncture. And when you know it, he had meningococcal meningitis. I've, which, I've never heard of a migraine turn into meningococcal meningitis. <laughs> well, it doesn't, unique. does it? No. Thank you for oh, highlighting my error. So you yes. missed something. I did because you, all of us anchored into anchored. a diagnosis. Oh. Um, and that's kind of dangerous. So uh, another interesting perspective on this is um, when a physician or NP wants to go in and see the patient without reading the nurse's assessment first. Mm -hmm. And I, I work with some colleagues who get really bent out of shape about this. Yeah. And now that I'm in a, a role where I do show up and transport people, I, I can appreciate this where I, they, they value the, the opinion that you mm -hmm. have in there, but they want to form their own because it's really powerful if they go in blind, yep. ask some questions and think this is a whatever. Right. And then come out, read your notes where you've put, I think this is a whatever. It's like, oh, bonus we're on the same page and then they read the triage nurse's notes and go well look all three of us were thinking the same thing versus reading your notes before they go in with that anchor of right. well this is pneumonia or chf or whatever you've kind of and, and maybe you don't write a diagnosis on your nurse's notes come on you write enough to, to direct that diagnosis absolutely and there you are you know with an anchored diagnosis that may mm -hmm. be wrong so it's a, it's interesting, and I've yeah. come to appreciate a lot more in my career that it's not a disrespect that they don't want to know anything about the patient before they go in from you. Mm -hmm. It's actually a sign of respect. Absolutely. Because they yeah. trust your judgment, and they don't want to be biased by it. Exactly. Because they will believe it. If they didn't have, give any credit to your judgment, they'd be like, well, I'll read whatever you want. I think it's all a bunch of crap anyway. Yeah, exactly. And but that's I'll not just... what they're saying. They're saying, I don't want to read it because I will... I will listen to what you've written mm -hmm. and I will approach the patient with that lens. Exactly. And that we know that that causes errors. Yeah. It actually is, it actually mimics research, doesn't it? Because it validates, right? Like when you right. do research, you want another study, another study to validate your findings, but you can't go in there saying, I want this validated. You go in there open-minded and then if the results validate it, you're like, oh, okay, well then Perfect. maybe that's the right thing. Yeah. So it's the same kind of thing. It's a fail-safe, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. We're a little Next bit biased, one. obviously, yeah, talking about bit. it. A little bit. I'm biased yeah. on bias. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. This, my brain's going to explode. I know. So, next one. Uh, attribution error. So, none of us have ever done this. No. You and I definitely I not. I definitely we're have never done this. We're perfect nurses. Absolutely. So, this involves giving negative stereotypes that lead us to ignore or minimize the possibilities of something worse. That's so, not us. No, I've never, ever been <laughs> the person who, no. when the same person we see every day or every mm -hmm. few days comes in smelling of alcohol again, mm -hmm. I have never attributed a that bias to, to that they are just drunk. No. Never. No, no, never. Okay, I have. Yeah, me too. However, those people can become hypoglycemic. Those people can be having MIs and those people could have actually fallen this time and, and have an intracranial injury. Exactly. Um, yeah. Another good example is an intravenous drug user with back pain getting labeled as drug seeking because either maybe they have been in the past or uh, that's just 
what the bias is today exactly. of, the, of the moment. Um, and they have back pain. Well, actually, it was an epidural abscess. Now they're paraplegic. And it just never ends well. No. So, you know, we're not saying be completely perfect and, oh, this would never happen. But we are saying acknowledge that you are making the bias. So we all know we still will. Yes. You know, so-and-so's back. He's drunk again. Yeah. But we're not going to assume he's just drunk. We're going to do everything. But, you know, the reality is nursing station chat happens. Exactly. And... Just be careful. Yeah. I think you just need to have some objective mm -hmm. measure instead totally. of just having a subjective dis opinion. Yeah. Assertion bias, when your thinking is shaped by prior expectations. So in other words, you see what you expect to see. This is an umbrella category that contains stereotyping and gender bias. For example, a homeless patient with a past drug abuse is found unconscious and it is assumed that he has overdosed when in fact he has severe hypoglycemia. It's kind of very much related kind to Kind of like the, the attribution Yeah, error, absolutely. Yeah. This is the typical patient who is drunk and we don't think they have a subdural. Uh, there was a young girl who presented with abdominal pain. I'll give you an example that's a little bit slightly different. And when she lay in bed, she didn't look like she had a lot of pain. But upon even light palpation, she cried quietly with pain. When I asked the, uh, well, the nurse who actually saw the patient initially and the physician came in to see her, they felt that she was just anxious. And that's why she was crying rather than thinking that she actually had a serious diagnosis. She eventually had an ultrasound which showed a ruptured appendicitis. The thing about this is that both, interestingly enough, when we talk about gender buyers, um, is that both of the physician and the nurse were male. And it was interesting that they saw this female crying, looking when she's lying down with no pain, that it was anxiety as opposed to actually looking at something else. So that kind of ascertainment basis, you expect, well, maybe she's just anxious kind of yeah. thing that we look at. And it's kind of interesting to me what we see as in pain or not pain. Right. Yeah. Gender bias being one of the other biases yeah, that exactly. I don't think we're going to talk about, but there you go. There's one of the other many biases, hundred. Yeah. Um, all right. Next one, triage cueing, or as we like to say it, geography is destiny. destiny. <laughs> so this is when diagnostic decisions are influenced by the original triage category that a patient is placed in. So the triage nurse diagnosed the patient as not sick, therefore the patient must not be sick, went mm -hmm. to the minor treatment area, and you are now not sick in the minor treatment area. Um, one of that I love is when the uh, mountain biker who flew over the handlebars going 30 kilometers an hour comes in by ambulance. It's yeah. a direct-to-trauma bay called the trauma team, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, and if he were to walk in with his shoulder dislocation, the, the story would get a much less acuity rating, and he'd probably go to the minor treatment area. Yeah. It's a very interesting one. You come in by ambulance, you're already up triaged. Yeah. Um, it is quite interesting, doesn't mean you're seen it? first, but you're typically, you know, come in with abdominal pain on an ambulance mm -hmm. stretcher. You may not go to the minor treatment area like you did if you walked in. Exactly. And it's interesting because that whole uh, triage, I don't know if we are quite aware of how much power we have in those decisions up at triage and how that actually impacts the patient down the road. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yin-yang bias is another one. It's the belief that a patient cannot possibly have a diagnosis because they already have been 
subjected to a multitude of negative tests. So they've been worked up the yin yang. That's the, that's I the, like that one. The yin yang. Yeah, I kind of like that. Probably the Asian part of me that likes the yin yang thing. Probably. Mm. So a 35-year-old came in with a swollen red arm, no trauma, lots of pain, neurologically intact, no medical history, had blood work and an ultrasound from a different facility, which was negative. So was diagnosed with cellulitis because it obviously cannot be Anything else. a DVT because no. it's already had an ultrasound yeah. and everything. Um, diagnosed with a cellulitis, put on the outpatient antibiotic program, just was not getting any better. Antibiotics were switched come back still not getting better lots of pain finally someone does another ultrasound guess what he had a dvt mm-hmm. so maybe it again, was an evolving one could have right? been yeah. might have been small maybe it developed because yeah. of this but the fact that you had a negative test once doesn't necessarily mean you have a negative test forever so yeah it's interesting isn't it, it? Is. it's fun the other thing that's not quite... for the patient no. but it's fun to acknowledge these <laughs> exactly. things because i think we all sit there and go oh yeah i've been there well i think that if things aren't going well, then we need to start at the beginning again and say, well, is there something we missed? Instead right. of saying, well, it can't possibly be that because we've done everything. Yeah. So how could it possibly be something else? The last one that we want to talk about is framing bias. And it's where your decisions are affected by how you frame the question. I love this one, right? So for example, uh, when you're very busy at triage and all the monitored beds are full and a patient comes in complaining of chest pain, you ask the patient, well, it isn't radiating down your arm, right? It isn't radiating into your jaw, right? It's not going in through to your black so that if they say no, you're justified in sending them to someplace else. Mm-hmm. Don't you love that one? That's oh, like, yeah. oh my gosh. Yeah. The yes or no question yeah, exactly. instead of opening the leading question that we're never supposed to ask in healthcare. Exactly. Now you're suddenly Well, I'm busy. I just want to know three questions. Yeah. And yeah. So that is one that we have to really think about. And it is difficult to sometimes allow the patient to use their own words and mm-hmm. really listen to them and then kind of twig in and it gets busy so we appreciate that but again being aware i always like saying the patient dies at the same rate whether you make it look good on the chart or not exactly so, so know that when you're yeah. trying to justify that they are not a cardiac chest pain or not septic or not whatever yeah if they are the fact that you have labeled them as not doesn't mean they start to get better yeah so you will have the cardiac arrest in the waiting room that nobody wants and exactly you know, don't don't take the the burden of the system upon you as a as a triage nurse specifically yeah if they are a ctas2 chest pain make them a ctas2 chest pain and let someone else deal with Absolutely. where they need to go you will be far more criticized down triaging a cardiac problem then you will not having a bed to put them in. Absolutely. And I think the other thing for us, perhaps, we've talked a lot about errors and biases. And certainly people would say, well, if you're going to look for errors, you're going to find them. Mm -hmm. But isn't that what nursing or medicine is all about? It's about quality improvement. It's about responsibility. It's about accountability. And it's for looking for the errors inside the body. What isn't working right. Exactly. We are trained to look for errors. Yeah. (laughs) And I think you've said this a number of times, Landon. We have to first acknowledge that we are biased and we are vulnerable to making errors due to many factors that some of them within our control and sometimes not. And these include the stresses of patient flow, surges of patient volume, expectations of the patient that you figure it out, long shifts, being understaffed, all of this. But this should not mean that we get a get-out-of-jail-free card. In fact, it is in those circumstances that you actually need to be a little bit more vigilant. Mm-hmm. I'll have to tell you that I'm probably slower at the end of my shifts with intaking patients as an NP 
because I recognize that I'm probably less vigilant. Um, that's why surgeons want to do, you know, you want your operation done in the morning as opposed right. to the last case that in the after. Fatigued. Exactly. Yeah. So we have to look at how do we mitigate some of these risks for ourselves. Right. And Let's I actually, not just talk about all the yeah, problems we have. How do we Let's fix it? Let's get some it. therapy. Yeah. Well, it was, you know, I've told you one way of I that I do it to mitigate some of my risks. The Joint Commission in the U.S. in October 2016 discussed a bunch of strategies to mitigate cognitive bias. And for and those of you who don't know what the Joint Commission is, it's kind of their accrediting body yes. for healthcare organizations. Yeah, it's a in, huge in a, organization. In a way more powerful way than our accreditation body. And yeah. it's very much tied to funding, whether your hospital can be open, whether you get federal funding. So when the Joint Commission says stuff in the U.S., and I know all of our American people are right now doing the proverbial eye roll, yeah. um, it, it needs, it, it gets acted on. Absolutely. Whether it makes got, sense or not, it gets acted yeah, on. Yeah, it's got credibility behind yeah. it. So in 2016, it came up with a bunch of strategies, and one of them is enhanced knowledge and awareness of cognitive bias. So how we do it, certainly in a lot of other hospitals, is MMM rounds, maybe a reflective case review, maybe a case that we put out there and say, hey, what do you guys think? This is what happened providing sim training which we're very big on mm -hmm. and um, that allows you to have muscle memory because you're going to see this over and over again so it helps secondly to enhance professional reasoning critical thinking and decision making skills so maybe even having a diagnostic timeout now that you know when you're doing say a PEA arrest this is a great one because you can actually get people to do because it's kind of rote right a PEA totally. arrest allows you to keep on doing uh, CPR give epinephrine and then you know the decision maker takes a time out steps back and goes okay keep on doing that while I try yeah. to figure out what's going on we're big here. proponents of you know pass on the running of the arrest to, to the, nurses. the nurse, yeah. We know how to do it. Exactly. CPR, two-minute rhythm checks, defibrillate if needed, give some epinephrine. Yep. Carry on. Yeah. I'm actually going to go look at this person's blood work, exactly. read the chart, and not get be a history. physically, visually present. Exactly. So that I can make better decisions. Absolutely. And not have that, that influence of the, the visual. The other thing is when we're giving information like using a professional way of reporting like an s-bar or something like that that gives objective measures again allowing us to have that professional decision making again sim training and definitely immediate feedback so that we can kind of figure out what's going on so if i used to when i would be triaging patients and if i would triage them to a less acute area and then all of a sudden i see that they've been moved <laughs> somewhere else i think it's really important for you to go back and say what did I miss because right. that's how we learn so be proactive in looking and saying oh my gosh or be the other person on the other side that goes up and has a discussion with somebody for example I had a very interesting case of somebody who got burnt with hydrofluoric acid and that's a very dangerous burn you get it with denture like with a denture lab or in glass etching and uh, it leaks out your calcium. It attaches to the calcium in your body, which is you get arrhythmias and everything like that. And they had made a CTAS-4 and sent it down to our minor treatment area. And that is a CTAS-2. It needs to be monitored. They need uh, to be put 
with some uh, calcium gluconate gel right away. And so I went right up to them and I said, by the way, this doesn't happen. You very rarely see hydrofluoric acid burns. So this is something you should know about. So I think that's important for us as professionals to take some accountability when we see it happen to ourselves and for us to give our uh, professional feedback um, as necessary. We always, we always have a joke where, where we work that you never want to be at triage and hear trauma team nurses to treatment, treat. to minor treatment room, <laughs> exactly. whatever. Everyone looks at each other and you're looking at the bedboard and refreshing it every five seconds to see, see which patient moves to the trauma bay. Yeah. And you're like, oh, good. It wasn't one, one of mine. mine. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. But it is. It, and, and if it is one of yours, that promotion of going and going, what did, did I miss, miss something? something. Yeah. Sometimes you you didn't. No, but People it's, just got sicker. But it's good reflective, right? Absolutely. It's very good reflective practice. All right. So third thing from the Joint Commission, enhance work system conditions and workflow design that affect cognition. So promote conditions that facilitate perception, recognition, and good decision making. So useful information displays, adequate lighting, a supportive layout, try to limit distractions, interruptions, and noise. This is a big one. And and I know as as someone who's providing a little more independent um, care now in, in my critical care job, is I, I'm so easily distracted yeah. by people coming and interrupting me in the middle of something. And I, I think back to my many years of, of emergency nursing, how many times have I popped in while an eMERGE doc seeing a patient and gone, can I just ask you something about that guy over there? Yeah. And thinking back now, is like, you know what? There's probably zero times that I actually need to do that versus wait a couple minutes. Even actually if they went into cardiac arrest, yeah. we're fine without you for a couple of minutes starting yeah. everything up. You know, it's, but that distraction is so important to throwing people off their yeah. game. And, and I know I'm very susceptible to that now. Um, so another thing, lim- limit cognitive loading, fatigue, maybe shorter shifts in, in high cognitive areas like yeah. triage, um, not moving patients around the emergency oh, department yeah, so much, one. right? Because I, I now have to learn another patient, another patient, another patient. Or you put all the sick patients in the same in beds, one, right? One like some, yeah, yeah, that's um, difficult for the patient and the physician who may be assigned to that or the, the nurse yeah. and the physician who's assigned to those areas we had, we had a, a recent tour of a, a large department in canada here where each little pod had mm-hmm. their own resuscitation room and yeah. so they would actually spread out the medical I resuscitations it was, it was so neat it's yeah. like in this pod of 15 beds there's yeah. three or four of you working and you each have your monitored beds your non-monitored beds and your little resuscitation room and you yeah. operate as a little mini emergency department inside a larger one and so and they ran their resuscitations independently in that pod. So how great that you're not overburdening one area yeah. with everything. Exactly. Facilitate real-time decision-making. Reduce the reliance on memory. Um, so technology, clinical decision support system, cognitive aids, algorithms. Oh, yeah. We are not expected to know everything. No. Use calculators use yeah. uh flow charts oh, clinical yeah. decision pathways absolutely. it doesn't mean you're less of a clinician because you pull out a flow chart absolutely. at three in the morning and go have we done everything here make a friend promote inter and interprofessional collaboration and teamwork to verify assumptions really if 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 the healthcare team that you work on is not mm-hmm. at the point now it's 2018 people yeah. everyone needs to get rid of hierarchy yeah and i'll sit around and go okay this is what i'm thinking anyone yeah. else have any Absolutely, and you know I would get out of an organization myself if if I was still expected to get up and give someone my chair because of professional stature or that kind of thing. It just it does not promote the best care. Not at all. 
Fourth thing from, from the Joint Commission, promote an organizational culture that supports decision-making processes. So this is, you know, almost repetitive at this point, but yeah. uh, support a safe, non-punitive reporting culture. That's a big thing. Yeah. If you report something, there's no punishment Blame. for that. Yeah. It's not, oh, you brought it up and I'm yeah. now not going to put you at triage because exactly. you bring up patient care issues at triage. Yeah. None of that. You can't have that culture or yeah. people will slip through the cracks. Actively include consideration of cognitive bias in patient safety incident analysis. So when you're looking for root causes, bias should be one of those things you're looking for mm -hmm. as to why something went wrong. Engage and empower patients and families to partner in their care. And you know They that. should be asking questions. Like we should be allowing patients. Totally. Not allowing, but I hate the word Encouraging. allow. Encouraging them because it's yeah. their body. And I always... Every time I leave a room, before I leave, I say, do you have any other questions? Do you have any questions about what I've said? Yeah. And it, I find that that's such it, a partnership. Yeah. And I, I often in my job will then have to go uh, consult with a physician mm -hmm. before we get on the road. And I, I warn the family, I go, so I'm just going to go speak to a physician. We're probably going to be leaving in the next five to ten minutes. Right. You know, do you have any questions? Yeah. And when, before we, we leave, when I come back, I'll ask you again. So it gives them kind of... Five Sometimes to ten to minutes think to think it. of some, and let's uh, be honest, to Google what I've said. Exactly. Look at some questions and, and present them again. Because Absolutely. in my world, they're going to be then getting in a car and driving to the mm -hmm. next city where I'm taking them. And I don't want them to be stewing about, oh, I just thought of this question. Exactly. So, so I find that, you know, do you have any questions now? And you know what? I'm going to come back in five, five to minutes. ten minutes. Yeah. You know, in an apartment it's not that a one-time thing. In a department that sees 400 people a day, that may not be practical. I'm, yeah. I'm in a different bit of a world there. But, yeah. but I yeah, still think it's necessary. Acknowledge that they may not think of all the questions right then. Yeah. All right. So our final word is, one, we make mistakes. Except us. Yes. <laughs> Two, we must understand why we make those mistakes. Three, we must learn from them. And four, we need to mitigate risks by improving our cognitive and physical environment. Excellent. Thank you very much. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can hear all the birds in the tree. It's quite lovely. It's, we're we helping listen. our safe uh, our safe environment um, for Landon and I. Hearing the birds is very relaxing. It Maybe is. we should be playing that in Maybe emergency waiting rooms. Podcast in the park every time. Every time. And she even made muffins. I know. And there's muffins in the park. Amazing. This doesn't get better. I uh, know, not today. Unfortunately, in our country, wine in the park doesn't fly. I so know. It's just going to be muffins in the park. But. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, we'll see you next month. Next month. Bye. Bye. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N U R S E M dot O R G. You can follow us on Twitter at nursumcast. And also find us on Facebook at Nursum Podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education, www.prneducation.ca.